Last episode, you were introduced to James Ketchum and his cast of cohorts, including pink Cadillac-driving Douglas Lindsay, as well as the offensive lineman-sized drug pincushion Van Marie Sim. Their various drug testing on volunteer soldiers was proving more complicated than they expected, with men reacting radically different than other subjects even though they were taking the same drugs. Eventually, Ketchum realized he would need to prove the tests were worthwhile. Meanwhile, Sim wanted to take the show on the road and attempt field trip trials. Films left intact give us a valuable look into what happened in the waning time of Edgewood, while testimony from former volunteers decades after their time at the base gives us a tragic look at how they were unable to adapt to normal life again. As Rafi Kachadorian aptly titled his video piece on the subject, it truly became a war of the mind. I loved, I loved just the recap of the last episode because I totally forgot that this man was just like inhale, not inhaling, but just stabbing himself with drugs. Literally a pin cushion. <laughs> and then being just the largest man. And then another guy, another player just jumped out of windows yep. and was a parachuter. It was a wild place to be, <laughs> especially a, a place that's just testing psychochemical drugs and they put psychos in, turn, in charge of the in charge of all this and they were like nah it'll be fine hello everybody welcome back to the gems of history podcast and welcome if it is your first time if it is your first time here i'm your host jacob shop and i'm joined with evan roosh as usual hey oh but if this is your first time listening to us, I would highly recommend going back and listening to our last episode on Edgewood Arsenal Part 1 so that you can really get a context for what we will be talking about in this episode. But I can't stop you if you just want to skip to this one. So, And if you want to listen to what it feels like or what it sounds like to listen to someone on these psychedelics, listen to the Lizzie Borden episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go all the way back in the archives. <laughs> in the sacred texts. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, around here, we like to do some fun history stuff. So hopefully you guys have fun with us. But yeah. Definitely go back and listen to part one before you listen to this if you haven't already. So it's crazy that we're coming up on year two. We yeah. are almost in February. It'll be year two. And wow. Yeah. We've got plans in motion for episode 100 and all that stuff. We got some actual announcements that we'll probably have accompanying the episode when we get that far. And we'll be sending e blasts of me popping out of various cakes, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> exclusively that's our first patreon <laughs> just me popping out of cakes fully clothed but still just popping out of cakes for dramatic effects yeah we'll get we'll we will get cartoonishly big cakes that evan is going to pop out of wearing a bib that says gems of history <laughs> and then i'll like shave my head and just have goh on the back of it that one is a you idea. We're writing checks we can't cash. That is an Evan idea. I do not sign off on that, but mm -hmm. I won't stop him from doing it. Yeah, if so, anyone listening just knows how to bake ginormous cakes. Oh, wait, we're, we're going to actual cake. <laughs> what do you think? I was, <laughs> I was, just virtual cake? No, I was yeah, thinking I think that's like, a weird we'd search. make like a cardboard cutout of a cake that you pop out of, not an actual giant Honestly, cake. Honestly, can we just get like a bunch of boxes, stack them up, and just write the word cake on it? <laughs> yes, <laughs> and call that, it that's, that's what we will do to Perfect. celebrate episode 100. But 
Evan, how are you? Uh, oh, also, sorry, guys. I know we missed a week last week, but we kind of had... Well, Evan I specifically had a lot going <laughs> yeah. on. So. Yeah. yeah, I won't get into too much of the details, but uh, my girlfriend and I were involved in a car accident uh, about a few weeks ago. We're, all, we're both totally fine. Um, no major injuries to report, but uh, when you're going through that, you can't really do too much yeah. of a podcast. So definitely appreciate the listeners for letting us take a week off. And I mean, in the meantime, there was great content posted on our YouTube channel uh, with Jacob doing the weekly YouTube shorts. So got to keep the content rolling. But yes, we are. You glad. can't stop. Not even a car collision can stop the content machine that is the Gems of History <laughs> podcast. But we're very glad that Evan and his girlfriend are both okay, and neither of them really sustained any major injuries, which is good. So, yes, we are back so we can finish Edgewood for you guys. And then after this week, uh, this will come out on Thanksgiving week if you guys celebrate Thanksgiving wherever you live. But uh, we were, we're going to be having something a little more relaxed for the episode after this, just so you guys are prepared for that. It's not going to be a full episode like research and stuff like that. We're going to do something a little different, see if you guys like it. So Yeah, very conversational, just with some I mean, people that you know who have been on the show, uh, just talking about some of their military service. A um, little, little bit more conversational and laid back, and I think we're looking forward to it. Yeah, but today we are finishing up on Edgewood Arsenal. As I mentioned in the intro read, we are going to be discussing the field trips that the Edgewood team took to do some overseas trials, as well as the impact statements that some of the volunteers had after the fact, which aren't as fun as episode one was. Do you think this is where they got the idea for magic school bus with miss frizzle <laughs> probably the, the, yeah the field trips for the edgewood experiments very wacky miss frizzle's classroom would just love to do like a mad minute or like just learn a paragraph in a history book but no they're just exploring the circulatory system of the human body <laughs> <laughs> and they're four <laughs> miss frizzle i want to go home <laughs> doesn't it get die on the show i'm, I'm, pretty, prob- I I'm would, pretty sure i don't know how someone wouldn't die on that show, <laughs> yeah. but uh anyways so we're gonna jump back in and we're going to go through the first we're gonna go through how some of the people that got tested on outside of edgewood arsenal didn't really have a great time with it so as we discussed in the first episode many of the volunteer subjects at edgewood arsenal were put through rigors of insane drug tests that obviously will mess with your mind when you're getting huge doses of lsd and other hallucinogens that are stronger than LSD and doesn't go well sometimes. And I did do the math right in the last episode. It was like seven times stronger than a normal strong dosage today. So. I can't imagine what that times table looks like for you. Just, <laughs> just, just me with glasses on wearing a lab coat in my right. basement. It's like carry the one taking and shots, wow, that's a lot of LSD. Taking shots of whiskey. Like, <laughs> I think this is right. Taking shots of the original hallucinogenic. Yeah. <laughs> So after first testing on animals, drugs like LSD, mescaline, and BZ were administered to the human subjects with no warning as to what they were being given. And while a majority of the tests were non-lethal and simply sent the men on trips of epic proportions, some of the tests were more dangerous. And in one case, it wasn't even the soldiers that ended up on the wrong end of a large drug dose. A man named Harold Blower was a 42-year-old 
tennis professional who taught tennis at country clubs. After he had a bit of a struggle with depression, Harold was admitted to the New York State Psychiatric Institute. And Edgewood, specifically Van Marie Sim, was in contact with a man named Sidney Malitz, who was the head of the institute, and Sim had been sending him drugs to test on patients and volunteers. And notice how I said patients and volunteers, which meant that not everyone volunteered to be a yeah. part of these drug trials. Not everyone signed up for this. No. A uh, quick question with that. You mentioned that he was the gentleman that you mentioned to start this, uh, suffered from depression. Was that from, was he already exposed to no. LSD or he was coming in to get treated for depression and the doctors were like... You yes. want to trip balls? Exactly. So he was just a civilian that had, I, I want to say he checked himself into the Institute because mm. he was just kind of having a rough go of it. Sure. I don't know what exactly was going on that caused him to be in this depressed state, but yeah, he just wanted to try and get some, some help so that he could get over this depression he was suffering from. Man, that's so sad. He was actually making the efforts to get help and people failed him. Medicine failed, failed him. Failed him in a big way. Yep. Because Harold Blower was unlucky enough to be one of the unwitting patients at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. The doctors who had signed a secret contract with the Army injected Harold with a catastrophic amount of mescaline. From a report Harold's daughter was given decades after his death, it was discovered that, quote, on January 8, 1953, between 9.53 and 9.57 a.m., Harold was injected with 450 milligrams of substance EA-1298. According to the drug study notes, at 9.57, Harold became very restless and had to be restrained by the nurse. He began sweating profusely and flailing his arms wildly. At 10.01, he pulled up in bed, his body stiffened, his teeth clenched, and he began frothing at the mouth. Similar reactions continued for over an hour. Jeez. Harold was still talking and moving his legs randomly at 11.05. Finally, at about one and a half hours after the injection had begun, Harold lapsed into a coma. He was pronounced dead at 12.15 p.m. End quote. I mean, that's just like medical like malpractice. Yeah. I mean, they just gave an unknown drug that they really didn't know what what happened and just gave it to this man and he paid the ultimate price there. And the fact that they they saw him like stiffen up and start frothing at the mouth and just sat there and observed. And they were like, hold him down. For over an hour while that happened. It's just, (laughs) I don't know how that's not criminal to do, you know? The U.S. government, baby. And I mean, uh, like you mentioned, the daughter didn't get money till decades later. Yeah, they didn't even know. That's when the court cases started. Yeah, they didn't even know about it for almost 20 years later. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just for context, he was given 450 milligrams. There's another patient, a female patient, that was given 150, and she was struggling with that much. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, it's you can assume that the female patient was likely smaller than he was being an athlete and stuff, but... That's that's a a lot of a drug to give someone. It's a lot of drug. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't until 1987 that a judge awarded the Blower family $700,000 in a ruling that described Blower as a guinea pig whose medical records had been altered to disguise the actual cause of his death. 
In a testimony during the trial, one of the administering doctors admitted, quote, we didn't know whether it was dog piss we was giving him, end quote. From an actual licensed doctor, from a yeah. medical professional. Who gave him the drug. Right. Yeah, so from 53 to 87, the family had no idea what had happened to their father to cause him to die in a mental hospital that he went to to get help. Right, and the judge, it's kind of... Kind of interesting that in today's monetary value, that seven hundred thousand is two point five million. Yeah, roughly. But I mean, not you can't put a price on like a father's life, like a grandfather's life, a family member's life. And the government was like, "Just take this little lump sum." It, hush and money. Uh, yeah. yeah, and then please don't make a book about it's it pretty or a Hulu documentary it's about the it. Same thing as Frank Olson, who we discussed yeah. in the MK Ultra series. Like his family got seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's just money to tell them like sorry but your dad's gone that always just makes you think of the south park commercial with bp yeah it's like the <laughs> we're bp sorry. we're sorry is in front of like a fire <laughs> but harold blower was not the only one that sim had been responsible for dosing without their knowledge as we mentioned in the last episode he would nonchalantly spike drinks one man remembered seeing another volunteer up at night holding a hospital scale over his head and luckily enough, wasn't crushed by it. Those things are heavy as heck. Yeah. The guy said, I woke up and saw a guy standing there not realizing that he was holding a hospital scale over his head. Oh, my gosh. And so the guy like was able to calm him down and be like, all right, put that, put that down. Yeah. I'll take you back to bed. But it's like, they're putting these people in harm's way, like deliberately. It does not sound like this drug was locked up at all. Like, it was just kind of free reign. Whoever wants it, it's over there in the file cabinet. I mean, the guy, the guy who's administering it is running around on drugs like 95% of the time. So it's, Like shirtless too, right? He's just a maniac. Yeah. Sim, however, saw the studies as promising, but the other doctors began to express their concerns. A son of a former doctor at Edgewood said that his father had sought out psychiatric counsel to deal with the oath that he took to follow orders versus his oath as a doctor of medicine. And quote that oath to do no harm. Yeah, so kind of a that's a tough judgment call for someone who took the oath to protect and help people, and you're getting told to administer just huge <laughs> amounts of drugs to these people. It's a gray area. The father of modern medicine actually didn't experience LSD, so how would he know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that works. Wait, it's an argument. <laughs> that's not a loophole. Uh, but this applied to a lot of the other volunteer soldiers as well, because in the army, it was drilled into you that you were to obey your superiors. So when these men were told not to ask questions about the tests they were taking part in, a lot of them followed that order. They would be threatened with court-martialing if they didn't do what they were told. But uh, eventually, with the secret dosings going on around the base, a lot of the people on the base began to figure out what the drugs were that they were being given. And this was bad for Van Murray Sim, who thought that he needed his tests to be done on unsuspecting subjects to get the most genuine results. So this is what pushed him to ask for LSD tests to be moved off of the arsenal to break the ceiling that had been set at the base. So in his mind, he says, since everyone at the base now knows, because I keep giving everybody a bunch of acid, by dosing the entire base's water supply. Oh my god. <laughs> he's need, literally he's literally scarecrow. I need to take this on the road. 
pack up the RV. We're going on a road trip. One of the largest scale projects that the Army took part in around this time was called Operation Big City. It took place in the heart of New York, and a car in New York was equipped with a hidden exhaust pipe that set loose on the streets of Manhattan and spewed bacteria into the streets, while agents carrying briefcases containing motors spread the bacteria in subway tunnels. Ten years later, the agents returned and threw light bulbs containing the bacteria in front of trains and down ventilation shafts to see how far the bacteria would spread throughout the subway system. And these tests were, of course, kept secret. However, as with other Edgewood tests, Big City was faithfully video recorded. Yeah. So that's the only reason we know this happened. <laughs> they literally told on themselves. Yeah. But I mean, to keep in, keep in mind, and we talked about this in episode one, they were filming all this as part of, I guess, their own documentary to be like, we just discovered this whole new bioweapon, and here are the results. And now, or like, we just created super soldiers, and here are the results. And now it's just a testament to how stupid all of these tests were. It's like, we have government funding, we need to do something with it. Someone yeah. say something, there are no bad ideas. So you can uh, see clips of this in the Bad Trip to Edgewood documentary. They show the car that was driving around in town, and how they just administered the uh, bacteria through the exhaust pipe and everything. It's insane, but... Sim told Army Intelligence that there was no irreversible change in the people that he had tested on at Edgewood, even though nobody was monitored long enough to figure out if there was long-term effects from these drugs. Shooting from the hip, that guy. He's just telling it like it isn't. In addition, Sim and his staff said the risks were low that testing on someone who may have an unknown but significant medical problem may pose a risk. They just love a good lie. <laughs> <laughs> Underlying conditions? Not a problem. By the end of his argument, the Army Intelligence Command agreed to allow him to do his tests and interrogations on one condition. The subjects could not be American, and the conditions had to be carefully controlled. So I guess two conditions. <laughs> yeah. But mainly that they couldn't be American. So it was settled, and on December 7th, 1960, Sims met with the Army Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence and outlined his plans for overseas LSD trials to be conducted in Europe in concert with intelligence agencies overseas. But it was fine, because they had to beat the Russians in their intelligence war. So, no two ways about it. I have to win in the intelligence wars by making people depressed and irreversible conditions, and a little bit dumber. The justification that was made for so many things, just because all you had to say was, cold war. <laughs> it truly was the, I mean, we're making jokes, but like it was the, this is how you get funding yeah. at the time. It's the Family Guy skit where Lois runs for like councilman <laughs> or whatever, yeah. and all she has to do is go up to the podium and go, nine, eleven. <laughs> then everyone goes nuts. It's like, oh, she has a fair point. That was these Army Intelligence people walking into the office. Mm -hmm. The Army Intelligence Command quickly began to put together operational trials in Europe and later on in the Far East. They put together a special purpose team, which I will be calling the SPT from now on, comprised of an officer from Army Intelligence, a doctor from the Medical Corps, and an officer from Edgewood. Major Ernest Robert Clovis a name that he had changed from Kolovos, 
that was his original name. All right, changed, comrade. Wow. Changed it to Clovis. <laughs> was the officer that was sent from Edgewood. This man apparently kept a cabinet filled with jars and vials, and one of them specifically was labeled putrescence, and everyone said that it smelled like rotting flesh. Ooh. One retired officer said of Clovis, quote, I think he was taking drugs like amphetamines and spinning around his quarters like a washing machine. End quote. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> So add him to the list of add characters. Him, you know, of wacky, <laughs> wacky individuals of the Edward experiments. Jeez. But uh, like this guy who had to change his name from Kolovos to work at Edgewood, there was also said to be like eight people who were a part of the Operation Paperclip program. So there was like eight Nazi doctors also on this base. Yep. Which is as par for the course <laughs> as we go through all these topics. And the name. Good old Paperclip. Yeah. Clovis also participated in a thing known as delayed auditory feedback in which he would put on headphones and attempt to read a passage while the headphones fed back a delayed version of what he was saying. So he would try and read the thing while he was hearing his own voice, but like a second later, and it would just throw off his speech patterns because he couldn't focus on one thing over the other. That actually just sounds more annoying than anything. Like while right. he was on drugs, I don't this, know. If was he, this just I like, mean, <laughs> this guy says he was on amphetamines, spinning around like a washing machine. Right. But I don't know if he was actually on drugs all, the whole time. That was just what one guy said. That sounds. If he wasn't, that kind of annoying experiment would just make him want to do drugs. Like, <laughs> exactly. I gotta get back. But if that's what people are saying about you, even if it isn't true, it's like, what are you doing? Making these people think that you are doing that. It's a bad reputation to It have. is. It's not a good thing. By the end of April 1961, the SPT was sent to Europe for 90 days to enact a program that they labeled Operation Third Chance. They were to dose unwitting people with LSD and monitor the results. Operation Please God Work. <laughs> we need this. We need practical applications for this LSD. So far, it's really not doing too much. And it won't do much. They had physical health evaluations on candidates, as well as psychological write-ups to know what questions to ask during their interrogations. The three men in the SPT would meet with local assistants and memorize scripts to direct interrogations and attempt to stress out the drug test subjects. feel like wasn't that hard of a job. Yeah, they're already pretty stressed. I would say getting unwittingly dosed by people from a foreign country and then getting locked in a room to get interrogated probably wasn't fun. Just getting interrogated would be stressful. You don't, <laughs> exactly. you don't need to add the drugs. So the SPT would guide these subjects into a room with a polygraph and increasingly get harsher to cause maximum anxiety and fear, sometimes telling the subjects that their current mental condition would be permanent unless they cooperated. So wait, it would be permanent unless they that's cooperated. What they, that's what they would tell them to like induce maximum anxiety in these people. We need to develop like a, like a guitar riff special effect like lying <laughs> do, 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 do. it I, ah, man it, the government's lying being, do, 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 do. being on like massive amounts of lsd and then being told like this is your new reality unless you tell us what we want to know that would be like 
earth-shatteringly terrifying. I'd probably tell you whatever you want. Yeah, I'm not going to hide any. Like, but at the same time, I'm not even going to be able to tell you anything. Right? You can't. Yeah, you can't really take what they're saying to be truth because, again, tripping balls. Yeah. So you could be seeing these people as like nine foot doll dog creatures and or the batman (laughs) like in episode one and they're asking you to tell about secret documents that you don't know about (laughs) foreshadowing they're nice after testing on 10 people in various countries and getting no discernible results the team moved into france and decided to, to disobey their orders to test on only foreigners and secretly gave lsd to a u.s soldier Private James Thornwell was a soldier from South Carolina and was stationed in France. He was the only African-American at the station and had a tense relationship with his superior, which had recently led him to being demoted around this time. It's a recipe for a not a good look on the government's part. Not a good look, yeah. He was suspected for stealing almost 200 classified documents that had gone missing and was interrogated for 99 days. That just seems excessive. And this isn't even drug interrogations. This is just interrogations, I'm pretty sure. For three months? Like 200 documents? Yeah. Well, I guess like three months? Like how are they not, how are they not able to get Literally, it out of them if, if he did if, do it? If he's not telling you after a week, I think he doesn't know. <laughs> I think you can give it a wrap, yeah. Thornwell recalls being in a small room being forced to stay awake for long periods of time without access to food, water, or a toilet. And his interrogators told him he would get his needs taken care of if he told them about the documents. But he didn't know about the documents. Yeah, it's a real uh, pickle that you seem to be in when you ask someone to give you information and they don't have it. You would think that you would give up after they give you the correct information that they have no fucking idea. Especially after a week or so of just no sleep, but 99 days. Three months. Three months without drugs, and then they bring in the drugs. In that three months, Thornwell said he would be beaten and assaulted with racial slurs, all while his interrogators would tell him that they were protecting him from white soldiers trying to hunt him down and hurt him. Eventually, Thornwell accepted that he was losing his mind and went and took a dump on the interrogator's desk. My man. <laughs> Talk about, like, the ultimate revenge. It's just like, I don't want to be here. I don't know what you guys want from me, so I'm just going to take a shit right on your desk. That is so... I mean, they also didn't give him a toilet, so it kind of exactly. came right around. What do, you want from, what do you want him to do? Right. He began to eventually play imaginary chess, spoke out an improvised novel, and admitted he didn't know who he was or where he was, and was confused as to why all of this was happening to him. Wow. He just doesn't know that he's in a different continent. He doesn't even know what a continent is at that point. Yeah. That is just so sad. And I mean, I don't know if they were just interrogating him or if they were giving him drugs. The article wasn't super specific on that because there is an extension of this this interrogation that comes up in a minute here. So I don't know if this was just thoroughly just torture interrogation and then eventually it just broke him. Mm-hmm. But either way, yeah, not knowing where you are or who you are, I don't ever want to be at that point mentally. No, whether it's old age that gets me or if I just happen to get, you know, any LSD in my system. Does but that sound like a fun time? I wonder if his improvised novel that he was speaking out was good, though. 
it was actually just bars. It was Charles Dickens quality. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, Thornwell even admitted to taking the documents, but his stories had varied between his confessions. One time, he would say that he burnt the documents, while another time, he would say that he threw them into the river. Later, he said that these admissions were an attempt to end his torture. Don't blame him at all for that. No, not one bit. Even under hypnosis, with the threat of physical pain if he lied, he didn't say anything useful about the documents. And after three months, Thornwell was, quote-unquote, set free. Right, this man literally admitted to a crime that he most likely, I'm assuming, didn't do. And then he was let, th- let yeah. free. I mean, if you're hypnotizing this guy and telling him you will feel intense, like, needles all over your body pain if you don't tell us the truth, and then that actually happens when he lies and he still doesn't tell you anything useful, I think you're just barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, give it a rest. An evaluation by a psychiatrist afterwards said that Thornwell exhibited antisocial personality and paranoid trends and stated that Thornwell was not believed to have compromised any secret information. But the psychiatrist recommended that the tests continue. What? Like, that is the most surprising thing that... Yeah, who is this guy? A psychiatrist, wink. (laughs) Yeah, this guy is the scarecrow. (laughs) Yeah, a military psychiatrist. Literally, the scarecrow. (laughs) Uh, And this is when the drugs officially came into use heavily. Less than a day after his release, Thornwell met a man who said that he was a lawyer. This lawyer man warned Thornhill that he was in danger and needed to come with him for help. After lunch, the lawyer man drove Thornhill to a remote house in the woods, and on their way, they were chased by another car. At this point, do you think they're just messing with them? Like, oh yeah, it's all a setup. Like the people chasing them are probably like Van Murray Sim in a mask. <laughs> I guarantee that he's dying laughing in that car chasing oh, yeah. him because he's kind of a dick. Yeah, so it's all set up. But Thornhill was told that it was French assassins out to get them. But at this point, the drugs were kicking in, and the unfortunate soldier had absolutely no idea what was going on. Oh, man. This, it's like a Jason Bourne scene. It's a little... Guy, imagine Jason Bourne is taken against his will, and he's on LSD. I would still watch that movie. Would, that would be a very, I'm not going to lie. I would, still, it, I would still watch that. It would be very fun. He met another man who said that... Who Thornhill said had green skin, and... He met this man at the old house they were driving to, who once again started asking Thornhill about the documents. I realized I just called him Thornhill, but I'm pretty sure his name is Thornwell, so I apologize for getting that wrong. We'll let it slide this time. I wrote it as Thornwell in the first two paragraphs, and then as I went, I slowly transitioned into Thornhill. And Thornhill is an Australian band, so (laughs) probably where where I got it. I see where your mind was at, yeah. Thornwell said that, quote, his head was full of the universe, meteorites were burning inside my head, stars shooting off, end quote. This is happening at an abandoned house in France. While he's getting yelled at by a man who he thinks has green skin. Yeah. And he just met a lawyer and they were chased by a bunch of uh, baguette-wielding <laughs> assassins. A lawyer. A lawyer. He then became confused and said he felt intense pain. He said he described it as feeling as though he was seated one second, but then being violently crushed against the wall the next second. 
and he felt as though his body was coursing with electricity and his body was being stuck to the chair by a magnet. A lot of varying feelings. It's electric, that's for sure. But this is the second time in the first episode there was another guy that said that he felt like his body was coursing with electricity. So I guess that's a somewhat common thing that happens when you're tripping balls. They really are just trying to make superheroes. Like they're trying, they're trying to make static shock by the sounds of it. They just throw him a garbage lid and see if he can <laughs> see fly. what he can do. But he said that during this whole thing, he couldn't disobey his orders and stayed seated until he passed out. The next morning when he awoke, he was in the lawyer's car on his way back home. The man simply handed him a piece of fruit and then let him go. <laughs> here you go, kid. Here's, a, here's an apple. Get out of here. Ruffles his hair. Yeah. In later recountings of the experience, Thornwell said he felt as though his mind was being erased. And this kind of goes back to MK Ultra as well, where they yeah. did the uh, psychic driving, where they would try and erase a person's mind and then replace it with something else. Which never worked. Crazy. <laughs> Afterwards, he couldn't speak about the experience without breaking down in tears and refused to see people other than his doctor, sometimes for up to six months. Eventually, he was awarded $625,000, but couldn't escape the ghost of what had been done to him. And at age 46, former private James Thornwell was found dead in a swimming pool. His wife suspected that he had a seizure but he had never had a seizure before this. So you can infer that something sketchy probably happened, whether it was just that he took his own life mm-hmm. or something else, but just so hard. Like I can't imagine moving on from something like that. Like that's you sign up for the military. Good for you. Like everyone's super proud, like around like your area, like you're helping out the government, like all that good stuff. And then the government, decides to test you with LSD. And especially in his case, being the only African-American in his... At the whole base. Yeah, in his base. And being singled out like that, and then just being berated with racial slurs in a time period where that was just what you had to deal with every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very sad. But the SPT saw the Thornwell case as a success. And some doctors even wanted to up the dosages after his testing. But Clovis was frustrated that he wasn't getting any meaningful science from the interrogations. Well, yeah, (laughs) there's there's nothing meaningful to this guy just acting like there's meteorites in his head and that he can feel the universe in his body. Yeah. (laughs) Again, it's not practical. I don't know what scientific... Science or scientific like calculations you can make by writing down he sees a man with green skin. What, where does that get you? Yeah, I, I can't imagine that gets you anywhere. Clovis said the tests had no definitive conclusions, and quote, in most cases, the gain was considerably less than that, end quote. So he straight up admitted that this was useless. And millions of dollars spent throughout decades. But Clovis's only excuse to continue was because the Soviets were probably doing something similar. They had no evidence that they were, but they probably were. Interesting, considering we bought the world supply of LSD. <laughs> yeah. And then threw it in Ketchum's office, apparently. <laughs> For a little bit, yeah. So Clovis suggested returning to a lab setting, but the army wanted to see if, quote, the Oriental reaction to LSD was different from the Caucasian reaction, end quote. 
That is and I know Oriental, by far the most racist thing. I was just about to say, I know said. Oriental is like a questionable term to be using, but that was in the quote, so I kept it in there. I, oh, yeah, I meant like for the army to be like, no, let's, I know, see yeah. if, let's see if these certain sects of Let's take it to Asia and see if it's different. <laughs> we, tr- we tried Europe. Let's go to the other co- Let, coast. Let's see, we've done Americans. We've Check. done Frenchmen. Check. We've done Germans. Check. Let's see if Asians are any different. <laughs> Let's see if they have anything. Nothing's to... gone well so far. Yeah. Tests were set up in supposedly Hawaii, Korea, and Japan, with all information from these tests set to be shared between agencies. However, in August of 1962, the SPT was once again told that they were forbidden from testing on U.S. citizens after the Thornwell incident. They finally learned a little bit. Look at that. <laughs> little, I mean, they didn't listen the first time, so I don't know if they're going to listen again. This time around, they're like, again, like, yeah, we definitely won't test this on American citizens. Wink. Wink. And then the guy, like the government official, is like, no, for real, like, we mean it this time. We're 100% serious here. It's like, we won't wink, nah, test we on won't anyone. do it. A wink. These tests take, that took place in the Far East were even more intense with increased dosages of the drugs. And the exact countries that these took place in are not known. They were never disclosed. So much for sharing information. Yeah. These test subjects were said to go catatonic and not even be able to speak. And when the drug wore off enough for them to attempt to speak, they would be seated immediately in an interrogation chair. So... Once you form even anything resembling a sentence, you're getting interrogated immediately. I'm just picturing the, the episode of SpongeBob now, where he's like, what color is my underwear? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when they got seated in the interrogation chair, the subject's heads would constantly fall onto the tables. They couldn't answer the questions, and one man even used his barely recognizable speech to ask for death to end his torment. Oh my god. Not good. Even then, the SPT opted to increase the dosages by 50%. Jeez. The subject then remained mute for eight hours, collapsed into the interrogation chair, and was moved to a bed and attempted to vomit. 50% higher dosage. Yeah, and the guys already weren't able to speak. And Imagine was- remaining, you, you have so many drugs in your system. You literally spend a work shift's amount of time not being able to talk. And like still fully awake, yeah. too. Like you're just, he's literally just sitting there. And then the moment you say anything, thrown into the chair, and then you just pass out. Ugh, man. In the end, the special purpose team's tests were useless. They risked immeasurable psychological damage to the subjects, and the program was thankfully suspended in september of 1963 and to this day the non-american subjects have never been identified right i mean they probably went international just so that they wouldn't have to pay out any any lawsuits because when you do it to american citizens like we've seen you have to pay typically 700 grand at the time 2.5 million uh, in currency but when you do it outside of our borders apparently you get away with it scot-free there's a lot easier loopholes to jump through going outside the country i think but back at edgewood lsd and bz testing was still going on as the special purpose team was disbanding and by november of 1964 the army was curious about the field capabilities of the testing being done by ketchum and his team 
So it only took him 20 years to finally ask, hey, can we use this? <laughs> well, we're in the like in between time, they were just moving on to different projects, apparently. They were just like, on to the next You thing. guys collect your data and we'll come back later. That's the ultimate, just peeing in corporate America. Like, that's the ultimate. We'll circle back on this. Yeah. An army major traveled to Edgewood on a mission from Lieutenant General William Dick, who was the chief of army research at the time. Bill Dick wanted to know if a projected cloud of BZ could incapacitate the crew of a group of Soviet trawlers off the coast of Alaska. While the senior officers at Edgewood told the major that the plan was impossible, Ketchum wrote, quote, The plan didn't make a whole lot of sense, and it offended me on a rational level. On the other hand, the challenge ruthlessly tickled my imagination, end quote. That's just the scientific mind. Yeah, like, he, he realized that this is a absolutely insane request to make. But you're like, well... But if it works... <laughs> there's that, like, 0.02% chance that this actually goes somewhere. Man. Do you think at this point they're all thinking of like in this time in this day and age in this time period like the atomic bomb is relatively new like hydrogen bombing is new we're trying to keep up with the soviets this the scientists that developed like the hydrogen bomb the atomic bomb are just known throughout history right like we know the people that did it do you think that that was a huge part of the motivation for these people oh, to yeah. develop these? Specifically Ketchum, yeah. Specifically Ketchum, because right. Because he, he talked about, like, after his time at Edgewood, how he had chances to be successful in other areas, but he thought, like, this is the smoking gun that I need to mark my name in history. It is interesting how even science works in trends, yeah. if you will. Like, in this time period, it was you had to dedicate your life of science to, like, developing new weapons such as like napalm even yeah like that was developed during world war ii and is now just no like agent orange like it's very interesting that time period i also imagine around this time period this is when ketchum like imagine him sitting in his office and someone walks in and starts they're just like hey i got an idea and then he just throws his paperwork uh, like behind his shoulders and he's just like let's do it yep like no talking about it at all he just like let's go for it he's asking everyone from like his right hand man to just the janitor that he happened to bump into like what would be a cool use of psychoactive drugs <laughs> hallucinogenic drugs so at this point ketchum drew up a plan for a large-scale experiment at a place called dugway proving grounds in utah and it was named project dork I have to say, out of all the different projects, operations that we've covered on this show, this may be my favorite name. Dork is pretty good. because And the name was apparently suggested by a higher up who apparently had a sense of humor. <laughs> so I just like, it. let's get all these nerds in a, in a tizzy and get them going Project out. Project Dork. Yeah, get them out to this proving grounds in Utah. You know, that's a military guy that... Like a classic military, like varsity football captain. Exactly. <laughs> this like, guy is the definition of like a Chad in the army. Oh my <laughs> Just god! Like, look at all these nerds. If he was here today, he'd drink so much Monster. <laughs> yeah. But the plan itself was drawn up and implemented by Ketchum in a storm of dexedrine-inspired focus. And if you don't know what dexedrine is, it's a stronger form of Adderall. So he is hopped up on <laughs> Adderall Supreme. This oh whole time God. he's doing this. Adderall Plus. 
Ketchum somehow arranged a huge amount of equipment at Dugway, such as a flatbed truck with an airtight observation booth and two inflatable hospital wards, plus a generator to create a cloud of BZ. And he did this in like two and a half weeks. I mean, when he puts his mind to something, he really gets after it. And just unfortunate that he decided to do it. <laughs> like, great scientific mind, just bad scientific experiments. But, like, even Rafi Kachadorian in his video is like, he put together an impressive amount of stuff to do this. <laughs> he was dedicated to the game. Volunteers would be suited up in protective clothing and gas masks and set outside on the, on the flatbed of the truck with an oscilloscope which I believe is just like, it shows like a waveform and it helps to regulate breathing. So the soldiers could watch that and that would help them regulate their breathing as they did the test. They literally had to be told how to breathe? Yeah. Yep. How's that not like a red flag? Maybe we should dial this back. No, it's fine. (laughs) The generator on the Proving Grounds would create a cloud of the BZ chemical, which would drift towards the men on the flatbed of the truck. And the truck would then move back and forth to make sure that the cloud hit the men on the flatbed. After being in the cloud for about 15 minutes, the men would then be flown to a makeshift hospital. So they were just sitting in like this pickup truck bed? Because it's sealed tight, right? There's an observation booth on it that's sealed tight, but the men are just standing outside. Like they're wearing like these, they are wearing like full protective gear, like these helmets with gas masks and like leather park like ponchos and stuff like that so they're fully geared up like looking like they're ready to explore mars and they're just just, ready to go they're just like go stand outside we're gonna spray you with a bunch of drugs do you think it's worse the fact that they could see it coming i don't think the i mean the men all saw the needles going in their arms when they got tested so i mean they didn't know what it was most of the time so they're like i i guess except for the one guy that was told oops we gave him too much (laughs) yeah exactly you never want to hear a doctor say oops that's lethal or that too but (laughs) oops but as i mentioned this was a huge experiment to put together but ketchum flew in all of the equipment as well as planted trees and set up guard posts on the proving grounds to make sure that he had all he needed to set up a hollywood style set basically to do this what were the proving grounds is that where they would just sacrifice like the youngest person there like i assume there's some there's some <laughs> sort of just yeah the proving grounds is like you yeah. have to prove that you're worthy the sun god ra is involved no, somehow it's, it's just like a tract of land that the army owns that they can go out and do tests on oh <laughs> so that's where like they're like here you here's a big ass area in the desert that you can go and send clouds of drugs at soldiers and that eventually became Area 51. Wow. But they like legitimately planted like rows of trees and stuff to set all this up in like weeks. That is very it's insane. Ketchum filmed the entire experiment, dubbing the film Cloud of Confusion, which sounds like a Yu Gi Oh! Not card. wrong. <laughs> yeah, a Yu Gi Oh! card, yeah. Rafi Kachadorian calls the film a quote, unique artifact of Cold War propaganda, end quote. Because I guarantee they had a very positive spin on it. It it is interesting because while it was an epic demonstration of Ketchum's tests, those like the men in the army actually in charge act like also were questioning what is the practicality of this. And to his credit, Ketchum was very honest about the limitations of the tests. Like he never really 
propped it up to be anything it wasn't. He said straightforward that the BZ test was not practical for large scales. Like, he replied, IDK, LOL. Yeah, so to his credit, he did admit his limitations. It wasn't like he sold them on a product that wasn't going to work. So, I, And they still threw him money. <laughs> small credit to him. Yep. The reason that these, large, these tests would not work for large scale is because just to drug eight men that were being moved to be in the cloud of the drug, the drug supply pretty much ran out, and the test had to be run before dawn, the temperature had to be just right, and of course wind would create issues blowing the cloud. Especially because this whole purpose was to be used on, a Soviet, on Soviets like off the, coast of a, off the coast of Alaska, correct? Yeah. Which that sea is just so unpredictable. Yeah, and it's cold. And it's yeah, it's so freezing, like the temperature so difference is gonna make it like move erratically. So trying to blow a massive cloud of BZ across the ocean to get the Soviets would be impossible. <laughs> like, do they do they forget how gases work? Like, <laughs> once it's released out of a canister, it just kind of goes everywhere. I don't understand how. This is why I said like Ketchum had to have just thrown his paperwork and been like, "Let's do it," because it's like. If he would have been told exactly what he needed to do and then had to set all of this up and then just be told, like, this is not going to work. Right. Like, I make things pretty for a lifestyle and for a career, but I even know that this won't work. It's dumb. After the failure of Project Dork, Ketchum proposed a simulated battle scenario with soldiers engaged in a field while a cloud of psychochemical drugs drifted around them. <laughs> That actually sounds so scary. Like, <laughs> imagine you're paintballing, then all of a sudden you see the devil itself. Exactly. Be terrifying. He said that this was the only way to truly test the program or else it had no point. And he got to this conclusion how many years after it was started? Yeah, after 20 years of testing. His proposal was rejected and he left Edgewood for a time. And while he was gone, the tests had become even more unregulated than before, somehow. Someone from the arsenal had kept Ketchum in the loop, and once, once Ketchum's second marriage fell apart, he moved into a hotel and then was eventually asked to return to Edgewood. So he got a pity hire to come back. Yeah, pretty much. This man's down on his luck. Let's him go down with the other ship as well. He went back to Edgewood in 1968, and the doctors there were less willing to listen and became more and more rebellious against his orders. Many of these doctors had misgivings about their work, and one of the psychiatrists, whose name was George Lieb, talked of a volunteer who breezed through a 48-hour drug test at the base, but then upon leaving the base, drove into the back of a truck and killed himself. Oh my god. Lieb stated, quote, I felt I had not done everything I could, but I certainly had done everything that I was allowed to do, end quote. Sheesh. So that just shows that these doctors there are doing the extent of what they can do, and even they realize, like, this isn't good. Right, and the kill count is starting to, starting to creep up there. Just for, like, total deaths involved with this project, both patients and volunteers and, like, scientists. Yeah, exactly. By 1969, Ketchum said he was living a godless life and realized that his tests were useless. He, was, he literally said, like, I was smoking dope and having sex every night. 
All right, I, I'm, call, I'm calling bullshit on the having sex part. He's living in a hotel. His second marriage just fell apart. He's like, I am swinging it. <laughs> There's no way he threw he threw the having sex part in just this outcome. <laughs> There's no way. However, he's, he's the friend that says that he has a girlfriend at another school. <laughs> he, he's who's that basketball player that's like I slept with twenty thousand women. Probably Dennis Rodman. Yeah, it's just like okay to do that, starting at age fifteen, you would have had to slept with like twenty five women every day. Yeah, like all right, guy, tone it down. <laughs> However, Ketchum did suggest some tests aside from chemical weapons, such as marijuana use for therapeutic situations, which I believe now is a good thing. Right, that's the one that stuck. Exactly. I also think that it is psych- in the process of sticking. Yeah, I also think that psychedelics now are a good thing to use for mental health on people who struggle with it. Microdosing has been proven to be significantly helpful. So, oh right, yeah. But things slowly began to look like they were not going to continue for Ketchum at Edgewood. In November of 1969, the Nixon administration said that the U.S. would not offensively use the. 49 tons of BZ that it had stockpiled. And this is when the official war on drugs started, right? Yeah. Nixon started that or did? No, I think that was Reagan. It was Reagan? I think it was Reagan, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. At this point, Ketchum asked to be demoted and he began to study in order to practice psychiatry. He later took a position to help with substance abuse programs in Houston, which is ironic. Yeah, that kind of came full circle. Yep. But it is interesting that he took it upon himself to ask, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to practice something that might actually be beneficial. Right. The one point that we'll give him is that he did try to, I guess, in a way, help. And kind of right his wrongs. Yeah. We'll talk about at the end. Like, I will give Ketchum credit that he was very open and honest pretty much this entire time with like how the tests were actually going and stuff like that while. He wasn't very open about what drugs he was giving to soldiers, but I mean, in the end, I don't know if that balances the scales. So, yeah. The next four years saw Edgewood... Literally 49 tons of LSD yeah. on one of those scales. Yeah. The, uh, the next four years saw Edgewood in trouble. Former subjects complained of bad treatment, and Van Murray Sim was eventually brought to Congress and questioned about there was no, why there was no follow-up care for the volunteers. The Edgewood labs were eventually sealed, all of the documents were seized, and the volunteers still on the base were forced out within hours. Sim went on to lie in front of the media, and the army then launched its own investigation. During this investigation, abundant abuses of power were discovered, as well as, quote, diluting and in some cases negating the intent of the policy of informed consent, end quote. Diluting. That's a uh, that's negate, a spin. Or negating. <laughs> yeah, they just had to put in diluting just so it's not completely negating. In addition, the experiments had failed to collect data to determine long-term effects of the drugs on volunteers. In- out of, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But like, out of curiosity, do we know like what was the media saying about like I mean, when it was discovered? Like, what was the media saying? A in- lot of it was kind of just kept to the halls of congress i think sure it wasn't as big of a, a media frenzy as I, I think it would 
be made out into later on. And I think a lot of that is just because a lot of these documents that were seized probably were still classified for a while. So it's not like the media could really grab any physical evidence to go on. Right. Interesting. In 1980, five years after the program was shut down, the Army published a study that stated 16% of LSD volunteers suffered from psychological problems. A later study showed that a good number of subjects had been hospitalized for nervous system or sense organ disorders. So like, hear, taste, touch, sight. As investigations progressed, it was becoming increasingly difficult to find enough evidence to support legal cases on behalf of the subjects from Edgewood. From Edgewood. Despite the fact that Edgewood required that the men have follow-up exams to determine long-term effects, out of the 3,500 men subjected to psychochemical tests, only 220 men were re-examined. Jeez. Less than 10%. Less than 10 The surveys done focused mostly on physical problems rather than psychological issues, so it's hard to ascertain what the true impact actually was. I mean, I don't believe like the like the study of the brain, I guess, and like really wasn't at the point where it should have been. No. Like depression really wasn't that much of a I mean lobotomies were still still like somewhat regularly practiced at this point. Like the science in itself was relatively new. So why else would they check for anything other than physical? Yeah. I mean we still don't really know anything about the brain. We don't know anything about the brain. Kind of insane. Yeah. However, a follow-up report from the Army showed that 24% of the men who were re-examined reported long-term adverse psychological effects. In addition, the legal cases brought by half a dozen former subjects were outrightly dismissed due to the Ferris Doctrine, which grants the army immunity from any claims filed against it by its own soldiers, which is very convenient. We need to do an episode about just the most wild court cases or lack of court cases. Yeah, honestly. Because that is just... Who who signed that into into law? It's so... Gives them a a hall pass to do whatever they want. That is dumb. However, in the 90s, many of the volunteers began to find each other and collected documents to support their case and sent it to a San Francisco law firm. And this is kind of cool because it was like the dawn of the internet and these people were like, I went on the internet and I saw other people talking about the same thing that I was going through. In like a chat room, yeah. Too like it was not near. Like there was no Twitter. It was literally a guerrilla campaign through yeah. the internet to get get a claim in front of Congress. The firm dismissed any damage claims and focused on the goals of the plaintiffs, who were then called test vets. So the firm realized, like, we're not going to get any money out of this if we try and sue because of that Ferris doctrine. So we just got to focus on what the the test vets wanted which was they wanted the army to acknowledge that the tests were unlawful inform the former subjects what drugs they were given explain those drugs health effects and then provide care for the men when they needed it right they just want their lives back they basically they really aren't asking for they just wanted information yeah and an apology pretty much right the army denied any ethical violations that's about right in the documentary I mentioned in the first episode, known as A Bad Trip to Edgewood, one former subject stated that he never experienced anything as terrifying as his LSD tests at Edgewood, not even his two stints in Vietnam. Oh my god, if that's not the most like 
compelling testimony. Yeah. To give you a glimpse of what this was like. And he started like, that's the first thing that is stated by any of these men in the documentary. He literally says, I've never experienced anything that terrifying. Which Two stints in Nam. Big like, that was one of the most gruesome wars. Eesh. The same man later said he began to have seizures and suffered from epilepsy when he had never suffered from it before. Another man reported that he began getting flashbacks two weeks after leaving Edgewood, and at the time of the documentary, they had lasted for 20 years. He couldn't hold a job after leaving the service, and eventually he got medication to help, but said that the flashbacks never stopped. The medicine just helped him deal with them. One man stated that he never sought help from doctors because he was afraid that he would be looked at as crazy and be dismissed from the army. In his own words, quote, Then I would have been out the door with a wife and five or six children with no place to go. So I hid my problem. I cried in my own corner. End quote. Right. I mean, we've talked about being court-martialed several times. That was the biggest fear of these gentlemen. And when you get court-martialed, if you're not familiar with it, you kind of you basically, of course, get kicked out of the armed services, but you also lose just about all the benefits yeah. that come with it, like medical, insurance, like steady paychecks, like and everything. Just the, the stigma attached to it. Oh, right. Like you're viewed, especially at this point, you're like you're viewed as a coward. You're a social pariah then. Yeah, you can't get hired anywhere. Yeah, exactly. But the watching that guy say that line specifically in the documentary is heartbreaking because like right after he says it he like starts breaking down like he almost starts crying it's very sad watching these men recount this Mm -hmm. almost all of the men in the documentary said that they hid their symptoms because they didn't want to feel like they were truly going crazy after their time at edgewood they struggled to interact with their families those who they those who spoke on the documentary claimed that people knew, noticed a drastic personality change. One man said that he went from a passive personality to having a hair trigger temper and stated that he had thrown plates and he even threw his wife through a wall due to the outbursts over oh my God. small, trivial things. Jeez. I mean, yeah, it changed, it's a drug that can potentially change your entire personality. Yeah. So he, he said, I. There was a very small argument that me and my wife had. I grabbed her by the shoulders and literally shoved her through a, a like a fake stone wall. Oh my god! Yeah, not good. He also said there were seven years of his marriage that he couldn't tell his wife about the testing because he swore to secrecy about it when he left. And he stated at the time of the filming that he can't get close to his family anymore because he doesn't know how he will handle himself. Oh wow! So literally like not even just his immediate family like all of his extended family he said i see them maybe once a year and they don't want anything to do with me so to be completely fair there really isn't a 100 percent accurate way to tie all of this to edgewood one volunteer admitted that he doesn't know whether his general time in the army was the culprit for his issues or if it was the time he had spent at edgewood so i mean it, with mental issues like this it's very hard to pinpoint a specific cause and you can't there's no legal way to say this was because of what happened at edgewood yeah i guess that is that is true that's one like the legal loopholes if you will because these men are already under an intense amount of stress yeah like we like you mentioned some served in vietnam just the 
era or that time period in general, like where we were constantly almost under nuclear threat was stressful enough. And then you add LSD on to it. And it's just, it's not like a broken arm where you can find the culprit for that. You, right. You, how do you say, I'm suffering from depression because of so-and-so? It's just so hard to pinpoint that. Yeah, everyone would be like, what is that? Yeah. At this point, like it's, PTSD, what is that? PTSD is a different thing because like, there mm-hmm. could be a triggering event or something where you have flashbacks to a certain specific memory. But, I mean, even that, it's like, it can just be general. There's something that happened while you were in the service, or, or just a service into general, where it's like, how do you pinpoint one thing that caused this? Right. I guess it makes... From the army's perspective, it makes sense to have that clause because then people could that served like military service and were in combat, they would be sued left and right. So yeah. I'm sure, like that was a, that's the reason why this thing exists. It could be very easily taken advantage of, right? But yeah, Ronald Zdrasny, the man from episode one who was given the highest dose of BZ in the fake communication outpost test, he's a perfect example of not knowing what the cause and effect really was. In 1995, he fatally shot his third wife and himself, but his second wife said that he never seemed bothered by his time at Edgewood. So it's fair to believe that it had nothing to do with his violent snap, but at the same time, it could have been related to his BZ tests. So it's just a perfect example of we don't know. Right. There's no way to know. In the end, Ketchum told Rafi Kachadorian, quote, It's tough, I know. I struggle with these things, but I have always had the feeling that I am doing more the right thing than the wrong thing here. End quote. Interesting take. I would say, especially considering he was running almost a nut house where the people in charge were also taking this drug yeah, and flying out of buildings and lifting scales over their heads. It's, as I mentioned in the first episode, he had the right intentions. It's just like, it, it doesn't work out that way. Like, the intentions are fine, but you can't translate that to be like, we did good. Right. And I mean, intentions are subjective. Yeah. You know, like you can say that you have the right intentions, but you end up hurting a lot of people on the way to find, you know, a scientific answer. The end doesn't justify the means here. Yes. In the documentary, Ketchum said he believes more men would have volunteered if they knew what was going on to what was going to happen to them while at Edgewood. And to his credit, there were some men who did ask to come back after their first time. But those are the guys that were given like normal doses of LSD who just had a fun time. Yeah, they were just drawing pictures of Batman and like literal, like a Joker, right? Like a clown. But the question remains as to whether those small sample sizes justified all of the testing done. James Ketchum was a man set out to make his mark on the world, but he never stopped to consider the limits and the dangers associated with the work he did. He did his best to make the program legitimate, but no precautions could help these men once their time at Edgewood was over. And these men deserved support from the government they served, but instead, they were told that they're on their own. And I share the same sentiment as one former subject who in the documentary simply stated, quote, it tugs at my patriotism, end quote. Oh, man, because these are all men that serve their country. Yep. But that is our coverage on Edgewood Arsenal. It's very interesting. You know, it's not a well 
broad or it's not a very often brought up topic. Yeah. I would say as is like MK Ultra isn't really that brought up. But something but that even, we need to talk about. But even MK Ultra is brought up more than this, I feel like, just because of the yeah. moniker it has, you know? The more craziness. Yeah. Like the crazy book. But we don't even know that much about MK Ultra cons- like compared to Edgewood. We have so right. much more firsthand accounting from this. We have literal video. Yeah. So it's crazy that this isn't more well known. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bad Trip to Edgewood documentary only has like 65,000 views on YouTube. Like it's in there in its entirety. Anyone could watch it, but no one, like, it doesn't have that many views. So, do you think that it just doesn't? Well, it's just interesting that, like, for example, there's a new murder mystery documentary, new serial killer documentary, like, every week, gets millions of views, but people just don't seem to be interested in these types of stories as much as, yeah, like, I, a random man, you know murdering and butchering people i wonder if it is something to do with the fact that it is related to the armed services where it's like people have an idea of what they want the armed services to be and to stand for and hearing stories like this kind of tarnishes that for them it's like an ignorance is bliss type situation and especially because i mean i mean next week we're gonna have two veterans on the show with us so it's like there are so many veterans that have a an idea of what the service was like for them. So a lot of them may just not want to have to hear about more things that either they disagree with that they did or that like they don't want to hear something that's going to shatter this image they have of the armed services, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I'm just saying, I'm just saying words. We're just kind of, kind of spitballing here, but as we usually do it. I think that is an interesting thing you bring up though, that this is like a different, it's a different, reception than like oh this guy went out and murdered a bunch of people you know right and plus like there's been multiple court cases about this actual topic mm-hmm. like it went to the supreme court right yeah and this just doesn't about like a supreme court case about how the u.s army drugged and overdosed not only american citizens but also i mean for being quite frankly i can't imagine the people in asia that were subjected to yeah. this were treated very well no uh, especially with the, I guess, where America's head at head was at uh, to people of Asian uh, heritage at the time yeah, considering Vietnam like, was happening. Yeah, and just the panic for the Japanese after, during World War II. Right. Like that probably didn't fade away completely by this time. So, right. so we're talking, I'm speculating here, of course, but we're probably talking a rather high kill count for what should just be psychedelic testing and like trips. Yeah, and like I said, it's, completely fair to say like i can't tie this directly back to edgewood so right and that's the way that they got off with it yeah so but i hope you guys listening enjoyed this coverage of edgewood and getting a little insight into something that isn't as well known and i think it is important to talk about because i mean you think about nowadays a lot of soldiers struggle with ptsd when they come back from the service especially those that serve on the front lines so and those guys deserve to be taken care of as well. Like, we're not saying these people deserve to be taken care of any more than anyone else. It's just that we, I think, as a whole, need to do a better job of taking care of these men and women who serve our country, who come back with issues that need to be taken care of. And sometimes those people can't take care of them on their own. So mm-hmm. something that everyone deserves a chance to live a normal life, even after something that is traumatic. So, yeah, spot on. But 
yeah, that's all we got on Edgewood. Uh, everyone at home, please go and rate and review the podcast. We haven't asked you guys to do that in a while. Oh, yeah. So, so if you guys could do that, it does help us out a lot. But if you guys want to continue the conversation with us, you can find us in various places on the social media interwebs. Evan, you want to tell those people where they can find us? Yes, you can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. And then on Twitter, you can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco and then myself at whatevskis. And then on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, you can find us at Gems of History Podcast. And Evan, if you follow him personally on his social medias or follow his other account that is draft day preppers it's fantasy football stuff that he does him and some of our other buddies have been doing live streams pretty much every week to catch Mm -hmm. you up on news for fantasy football and all that fun stuff so you can kind of get some good intel on how to win your leagues yeah yeah definitely tune in we're having a lot of fun just doing quick hour episodes and just giving you whatever you need to win your league yeah so they're doing that on youtube and twitter i believe yeah, so they're not posting like actual episodes of the podcast. It's mostly just the live streams, and then you can go back and watch them if you missed them. But yeah, go follow them there and keep in touch. Yeah, if you want to see what my face looks like in the real. <laughs> and what our friend Drew looks like inside of his truck. Yeah, <laughs> he always does it inside of his it's truck. It's so funny. It's like, my friend, you have a house. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's all we got for you guys this week. Everyone have a very happy Thanksgiving, a happy and safe Thanksgiving. Uh, if you're going out and partying, I know this is a very big party week, especially Wednesday. I mean, it's called Blackout Wednesday. It's one of the biggest bar nights in the United States. So if you are going out and celebrating, doing stuff like that with your friends, just make sure that you're safe. Don't drive drunk. From a recent car crash survivor, do not drive drunk. It's Yeah, it's not worth it. Even when you get in it sober, it is very scary. It's not fun. So yeah, just make sure you're having fun and being safe about it. But Everyone, make sure that you tell the people in your life that you love, that you are thankful for them. And we are all thankful. We here are thankful for all of you at home Mm -hmm. for listening to us and all of the support you guys have shown us along the way. And we will talk to you guys soon. We love you all.